Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Is that a burnt orange Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 104, The Mitchells versus The Machines. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And yet again, a huge hi and welcome to you all, whether you are a returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast. Basically, no matter how you got here... I'm so grateful that you are here. Thank you for being so. And as always, thank you to everyone who has listened to previous episodes and provided feedback for previous episodes. So I recently released episodes on Deadpool and also The Frighteners as well. And people love both of those movies for very obviously different reasons. And then, because I like to try and keep the selections on Verbal Diorama a little bit fresh, I don't like to try and do the same things over and over if I can help it. So again, something completely different to both Deadpool and The Frighteners. Although, I do think Deadpool would very much like the robot superhero landings in this movie. It's obviously the Mitchells versus the Machines. And I adore this movie for all the reasons that I'm going to talk about. I think this is a pretty perfect movie. It's by far my favourite movie of the year so far. No hyperbole either. I absolutely love this movie. Obviously, I love it because it's animated. I'm a huge fan of animation, but also the fact it's super fun as well. It made me laugh so much the first time I saw it. And I can tell you, I've seen this movie four times already this year so far. It still makes me laugh. I'm still a little bit obsessed with how brilliant it is. So when I was planning out the schedule for July, as soon as I saw this movie, I knew that I had to have it in the schedule. I had to talk about this movie as soon as possible. I'm actually going to be seeing it a fifth time this weekend as well. Obviously the weekend after I'm recording this. So by the time this episode is released wide, I will have seen this movie five times. And every single time I get something new out of it. I'm just, I love it so much. And you know, I just want to jump straight into it 
really, because there's only really one thing to say to introduce the trailer. And that simply is, behold, the twilight of man. Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah, who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. I'm super sorry, everyone. Let me introduce myself. I'm Katie. I'm sort of a weirdo. My parents haven't figured me out yet. To be fair, it took me a while to figure myself out. My brother, also weird. Hi, would you like to talk to me about dinosaurs? No. Okay, thank you. And my mom. Katie Face Cupcakes. Ah! All of us, really. How about we put our phones down and we can make 10 seconds of unobstructed family eye contact. Starting now. See, this is good right here. This is natural. Every family has its challenges. We haven't had a good family picture in years because you two are always arguing. For my family, our greatest challenge... Probably the robot apocalypse. Attention all robots. Capture every single person on the planet. What would a functional family do? Uh, butterfly formation! So we just do that, right? Who's behind this? Pal? I gave you all boundless knowledge, and you treated me like this. Last people left? It's up to us. Save the world. Katie, we're gonna do this together. Mitchell family on three! Mitchell Mitchell family. Family. No, oh, no. Sorry. Two. You you sorry, 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 sorry. One! Mitchell oh, family! Find them now. Everything with a computer chip is alive! Mitchell's engaged! Ten and two. There you go. have always been weird, and that's what makes us great. Hold on a second. What's a Furby? Why would someone build that? Creative outsider Katie Mitchell is accepted into the film school of her dreams and is eager to leave home and find her people. When her nature-loving dad insists on having the whole family drive her to her school and bond during one last totally not awkward or forced road trip. But just when the trip can't get any worse, the family suddenly finds itself in the middle of a global robot uprising. The advanced AI plan to capture every human on the planet and shoot them into the distant void of space. Now it's up to the Mitchells, Luddite dad Rick, upbeat mum Linda, quirky little brother Aaron, their squishy pug Monchi and two friendly but simple-minded robots, as well as Katie, to save humanity. We'll quickly go through the cast. This is a phenomenal cast, by the way. I think I always say that pretty much every episode, but this cast is absolutely 100% chef's kiss perfect. Genuinely, everyone. We have Abby Jacobson as Katie Mitchell, 
Danny McBride as Rick Mitchell, Maya Rudolph as Linda Mitchell, Mike Rianda as Aaron Mitchell, Olivia Coleman as Pal, Eric Andre as Mark Bowman, Fred Armisen as Deborah Bot 5000, Beck Bennett as Eric, John Legend as Jim Posey, Chrissy Teigen as Hayley Posey, Charlene Lee as Abby Posey, Blake Griffin as Palmax Prime, Conan O'Brien as Glaxon 5000, and Doug the Pug as Munchie. The Mitchells vs. the Machines was written by Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe, and it was directed by Mike Rianda and co-directed by Jeff Rowe. And mostly, I think this movie is known for its producers, and they are Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. They are very well known on this podcast. They are very well respected on this podcast as well. They're the guys who wrote and directed episode 31's The Lego Movie and produced episode 32's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Phil Lord also wrote that one. And their first foray into working with Sony Pictures Animation was 2009's Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is a super fun little movie, by the way. It's been on my list, actually, to cover since pretty much day one. That movie would also have them work with Mark Mothersbaugh. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs has its own interesting production history, so that's kind of for another episode. But needless to say, the production taught Lord and Miller a lot of lessons. And ultimately, that movie did well with both critics and commercially. They'd followed that up with its sequel, then the sublimely brilliant The Lego Movie, and then its sequel. And then there was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Before Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was released, Sony Pictures Animation announced on the 22nd of May 2018 that Phil Lord and Christopher Miller had agreed a deal to produce The Mitchells vs. The Machines with Mike Rianda directed from a screenplay he wrote with co-director Jeff Rowe. Rianda and Rowe were former writers on the animated series Gravity Falls, where Rianda also served as creative director for season one and creative consultant on season two. I have never seen Gravity Falls, I'll be honest, but since it's on Disney+, Plus and it only has two seasons, I guess I know what I'm going to be binging next. Jeff Rowe also wrote for the Netflix original show Disenchantment, which also stars Abby Jacobson in the lead role. Jacobson is also the writer, executive producer and star of the upcoming Amazon series of A League of Their Own. Uh, a League of Their Own is episode 43 of this podcast, by the way. It's the greatest sports movie ever made. And Abby Jacobson was the first cast member to be announced for the Mitchells versus the Machines on the 19th of February 2020 as playing the lead protagonist Katie Mitchell with announcements for Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, Eric Andre, Olivia Coleman and writer-director Mike Rianda being cast the following day. Olivia Coleman was a particular coup for the production in that Phil Lord commented that this was just the first step in their plan to become best friends with her, because honestly, I'd just settle with being a casual acquaintance with Olivia Coleman. So basically what I'm saying is, if you are listening, Olivia, get in touch. Maybe we can go for coffee or something. I just genuinely want to be friends with you. That sounds weird. <laughs> that sounds genuinely weird, but I would love to be friends with Olivia Coleman. When it came to animating the movie, much of the technology actually already existed thanks to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, but new tools had to be created by Sony Pictures Imageworks in order to deal with the differences between the two movies on their animation styles. The Mitchells vs. The Machines enlisted the help of CG supervisor for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Michael Lasker, in order to make a hand-painted watercolour style to mimic the traditional 2D art within a 3D CG environment. 
Unlike Spider-Verse, the Mitchells versus the Machines wouldn't have previous material to use as inspiration. And one of the major themes of the Mitchells versus the Machines is how humanity is connected to our flaws, as well as the theme of tradition versus technology. The animation style harkens back to the flaws of old traditional animation and is very reminiscent of its hand-drawn concept art. There's so many bits online where it shows the hand-drawn concept art. It's so beautiful and so remarkably similar to what actually came out in the end. It's just, this movie just blows my mind. It's so gorgeous. As soon as I saw it, the animation style just popped out straight into my mind and just kind of stayed there. And yeah, I absolutely love it. What basically this meant was eschewing the usual hyper-realistic CG animated look and movement for things like fur or grass. Because if you think of modern computer-generated animation, we are used to things being hyper-realistic. We're used to individual blades of grass. We're used to the way fur moves. Even if you look at something like Monsters, Inc., the way that Sully's fur moves, that's what we're used to now. So this movie is basically going back and rewriting all of that history and basically telling us, no, it doesn't have to be that way. But you don't actually think it should be any different because of the way the environment is. It's just genius, absolute genius. And also what they did was they enlisted character designer and 2D supervisor, Lindsay Olivares, to create Katie Vision, which was a revolutionary style of adding hand-drawn and live-action elements to Katie to show her emotions on screen, reflect her creativity and her unique way of seeing the world. But I want to touch on Katie Vision a little bit later because I kind of want to talk about the watercolour style as well as the juxtaposition between the watercolour style which was used for the majority of the movie and also the hyper-realistic style that still has a place in this world. Because if you look at a character like Pal and her team of robot minions, as well as her headquarters. They're all designed with these very sharp, smooth edges. The Mitchell family home, in contrast, has these irregularities, purposeful, obvious brushstrokes and wonky lines. You think that this obvious juxtaposition wouldn't work and that it would be blatantly obvious in such a stylized movie, but it's not. Everything blends perfectly in this movie. The process behind the scenes is the same, regardless of the animation style. And I'm not gonna go into Spider-Verse's style in detail because I talk all about that in episode 32 of this podcast. And while a lot of the technology was reused, the machine learning that Spider-Verse used for face outlines was ultimately not used on the Mitchells versus the machines, mainly because the animation lines for face outlines differed so greatly between the two movies Instead, they came up with a whole new outlining tool that reflected the inside colour rather than just having a standard hand-drawn black outline that also responded to the lighting in the scene as well. So while the technology was there and they could use it if they wanted to, they decided it wouldn't suit this particular look. And so they created something different to suit this particular look. And this is a truly beautiful looking movie. Little things that I really love in this movie are things like the robot's exhaust trails. They were developed by visual effects artist Pav Grachola, who also worked on Edge of Tomorrow, which is episode 20 of this podcast, by the way, as well as on Spider-Verse as the FX supervisor. And he basically combined four or five different effects, piled them on top of each other for these thruster effects, which basically used shards as they took off, which were animated in 2D. And then in flight, Grachola and his team animated polygonal semi-transparent vapor trails in blue hues which turn pink 
as well, with additional polygon trails coming off the arms and diamond shapes from the inner core thrusters to show the heat from those thrusters, as well as 2D sparks on takeoff. That is just for the robot thrusters. That is the level of detail that this movie goes into. And I feel like this movie is kind of frustrating to talk about in a way. Because like so many wonderful animated movies, like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I'm pretty certain I mentioned this in that episode too, is it's very difficult to emote just how beautiful and how detailed the animation is on this movie with my voice. I do not have the language, I do not have the vernacular to actually describe every single detail of why this movie is so perfect. So it's really frustrating <laughs> for me actually to sit here and talk about the wonderful details in this movie because I can see them in my head and I can see how truly wonderful it all is. But unless you've seen the movie, it's really not going to make a great deal of sense. So I really hope if you're listening to this, you have seen this movie. And if you haven't, please go and see it. It's on Netflix. It's literally available for free, obviously with a subscription, on Netflix. You have no excuse not to see this movie. And it is perfect. I don't think I can stress that enough how perfect this movie is. The other thing that I love is when the robots glitch. So you have Eric and Deborah Bot 5000, who are genuinely the bestest boy robots that you will ever find in your life. Heads often end up backwards when they glitch, which adds obviously a layer of a physical comedy to the voice work, which the voice work in this movie is just, oh, oh, perfect. But it gives additional personality to both Eric and Deborah Bot 5000, as well as Pathos as well and the ability to go against your programming and that's something that the robots learn to do it's something that rick learns to do as well probably the robots actually do it a lot better and a lot quicker than (laughs) the rick does speaking of robots i can't not talk about the stealth robots because they are completely different to the very traditional asimov style robots that we see they obviously move in a very unusual way They can slice themselves up geometrically and they can rebuild themselves. They can warp into a new place. They were developed using brand new tools, which basically broke them apart differently every single time. They used a super simple body rig, but basically they could be dissected differently. And this meant that no stealth robot shared poses or animation. And because of this, the animation was often unstable and needed a lot of work to render correctly. Because it was very obvious that these instabilities would basically make them respawn randomly. And that was something that they really worked hard to get a grip on. Because you need all of these geometric shapes to come out and go back in, in the same sort of place as they were before. Ultimately, the art of the film looks pretty much exactly like the finished product. The concept art made it into the film, which often isn't the case for animated movies. The fact that this movie maintained its illustrative quality throughout makes it really quite remarkable. Lindsay Olivares was one of the first artists hired. Her concept drawings were exactly what the team were looking for. All the flaws in those designs were worked into the movie, as well as the clear love for the project. This is a movie that has purposeful flaws in the animation, in the way that everything looks, but it also has all of the love that the people making this movie... It was famously made by a bunch of weirdos, and I'm so glad it was made by a bunch of weirdos, because if it was made in the general studio system that most things are made, 
it would not be this good. We need this sort of creativity in Hollywood. I'm so glad that we got it in this movie. And it was very clear that the love that went into this movie, because the team had just finished Spider-Verse, they had the base technology available to achieve all of these amazing things with this beautiful watercolour look. Katie's films also have a journey to them. She starts off with puppets, which is actually real life puppet work, which everyone, everyone listening to this knows how much I love puppets. And then her style basically evolves. So she starts off with very simple techniques of filmmaking and she evolves to things like wind machines and green screens. The movie even goes as far to make sure that a little green tinge still exists around the edges because the audience has to believe that Katie is good enough to get into film school but not too good to not be a college age kid interested in a career in film. And Katie Vision is the way the movie shows Katie's expressionism and creativity, using 2D cartoons and images to show her emotional state. In fact, it was hard for Lindsay Olivares, who was responsible for Katie Vision, to not go crazy on these concepts and ideas, to truly be the Katie Mitchell of the production. And it is very much like an old school collage of different images and ideas to just encapsulate Katie's frame of mind at the time. And it's so unique in this movie. There, no other movie does this. I think it's going to be something that a lot of family animations are probably going to take on board. I feel like this movie is such a stepping stone for other studios to emulate. And genuinely, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I love Disney and Pixar, but I feel like both are a little bit stale at the moment. I feel like they know what sells and they know what people expect of them but I feel like with Sony they kind of going so above and beyond of what we expect of them we didn't expect Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and then we got it and it was just so perfect and then we didn't expect the Mitchells versus the Machines and then we got it and look at what we got it's just mind-blowingly brilliant and the thing that made me laugh the most in this movie, I laugh a lot at this movie and I cry a lot at this movie as well, but I mainly laugh. And the thing that made me laugh the most was the Furbies. Now, I remember my sister having a Furby and it was terrifying. So I don't know why I find the Furbies so funny, but the Furbies were actually the most photorealistic aspect of the whole movie. So the regular sized Furbies are matched in an illustrative way to actual Furbies. But the world's largest Furby, um, genuinely, why would they make that? But they had to make it look and feel like this Furby had weight and a genuine sense of dread. How the world's largest Furby has Godzilla-style breath, I have no idea. But you know what? It's a really cool visual and I don't care that Furbies don't have Godzilla breath. I don't care. So for the huge Furby, they wanted him to be convincingly 20 to 30 foot tall, but not be too distracting with too many moving parts, because obviously Furbies, they don't have moving parts. They literally have eyes that open and beaks that open, and that's it. Also, the world's largest Furby, also voiced by director Mike Rianda, who voiced a lot of things in this movie, and genuinely, what a guy. I mean look at what he did. Obviously, there's no point me doing it now because this episode's come out, but I would have loved to have talked to Mike Rianda. I bet a lot of podcasts would like to talk to him. I would love to talk to that guy because, oh, I love this movie. Anyway, so permission obviously had to be sought from Hasbro to use Furby. And before this was given, alternative toys were storyboarded 
including an Immortan Joe-style leader called Tickle Me Melmo, who had a propensity for evil one-liners before accidentally being tickled into submission. But this is not the only Mad Max Fury Road reference the movie has either, which is very interesting. But Tickle Me Melmo didn't sway the studio because they actually wanted Furby. And permission to use Furby took longer than expected, mainly because finding the right person to actually speak to a Hasbro wasn't easy. And obviously Hasbro were very keen for Furbies to be portrayed in a certain way. So original plans to have them spilling the blood of the innocents and wanting to feast on human flesh. <laughs> so I made myself laugh there. So those ideas were called. We all know that Furbies do, in fact, feast on the flesh of humanity. But Hasbro do not want that to be public knowledge. So that is just between me and you. And obviously they had to act like Furbies. So the way that their eyes open and the talking patterns, as well as the fact that Furbies are not particularly elegant toys. You know, they're a bit jolty. There's no fluidity to their movement. They are very creepy little things, but they have a very specific pattern of motion, which was very easy for the animation team to replicate. And actually, Mike Reander fully expected movie toy in Furbies, but unfortunately, nothing ever came of it. So it seems like that although Hasbro were called to have Furbies included in the movie, this is obviously the original style of Furby as well. Furby Connect, which is the latest version of Furby, believe that was discontinued in 2018, although you can still get them. But the classic Furby look is long gone. And I feel like what a missed opportunity at merchandise because would I have bought a Mitchells versus the Machines Furby? Probably. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if Jess would like it think she would hate it but at least she'd be able to protect me from the fact it would feed on my flesh uh, <laughs> oh, I love this movie anyway and just to add as well what we got in the Mitchells versus the Machines wasn't what was originally intended so the original ending was set in Las Vegas saw the Mitchells face a huge mecha Furby we never got that in the end. The Furby army is one of the most memorable scenes in the movie. Mike Reander actually got a Furby when he was 13. He was genuinely terrified of the fact that it would wake up randomly in the middle of the night, start talking. Something so frightening simply had to be one of the antagonists in this movie. I want to talk about as well some things that I genuinely adore in this movie. And the first thing is I feel like Lord and Miller movies specifically they have a repeating theme of fatherly love and it's becoming very apparent to me because Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs has a father-son relationship at its heart and that's mostly thanks to the insistence of Sony's Amy Pascal but that is a story for that particular episode which if there's a demand for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs I will definitely bump that up the schedule because I think that movie is brilliant. The Lego movie is obviously based around a father who doesn't want his son to ruin his precious collection of toys. Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse has a father who genuinely wants the best for his son, doesn't want his son to get into the same life of crime that his brothers got into. And while many of these relationships are strained and difficult, ultimately they're fathers who love their children. Unlike many family movies where fathers are mostly disconnected or emotionally or physically absent from their child's lives. And the estranged father trope is something that Steven Spielberg was particularly remembered for. But I really love the fact that this movie goes out of its way to portray Rick as 
just a really loving father who just doesn't understand his child. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention dog, pig, dog, pig, love of bread. Because in a first for animation, which usually gets humans to voice animals, Monchi is voiced by the official most followed pug on the internet. He has a combined 13 million followers across all of his social media accounts. He is nine years old. His name is Doug the Pug. Doug the Pug made his acting debut in the Mitchells versus the Machines. Every bark, every snore, every general doggy noise from Doug was recorded for the movie. Obviously, Doug was the diva of the cast. He only wanted certain treats in his trailer, only drinks room temperature Evian. But otherwise, I'm assured he's very down to earth. Uh, Doug is also a New York Times bestselling author, a two-time People's Choice Award winner for the Animal Star of the Year, no less, and has his own line of merchandise. But when he's not voicing characters in film, Doug can be found at his home in Nashville, Tennessee, with his best friend and owner, Leslie Mosier. Mike Rianda, whose childhood pug Monchichi was the basis for the character of Monchi, wanted the integrity of the voice work to extend to the family dog and Monchi visually is based on old family photos of Monchichi. Human voices didn't work for the character and so Mike Rianda reached out to Doug's owner who agreed to allow Doug, who is honestly the most famous actor in the movie by far, to lend his voice to Monchi to give it that added authenticity. And because of the pandemic, Doug recorded all of his lines at home. And if you're wondering, because I was, if Doug got an outfit to dress up as a little gentleman, then a fashion designer in London did create a special pug harness based off the little gentleman suit just for Doug. I, I can't find any photos of Doug as the little gentleman, but please, I implore you, if anyone has a photo of Doug the pug as a little gentleman, please send it to me. <laughs> I just want to see Doug as a little gentleman. <laughs> I'm, I would love that because I love when they dress Monchi as a little gentleman. It's just one of the best scenes in the movie. And one of the best things that I read about this movie is, so when Doug watched the movie and when he heard Monchi bark, Doug barked at Monchi. So really, Doug was replying to himself. Oh, so cute. I love Doug. <laughs> Uh, is there anything that I don't love about this movie? No. Now, I need to talk a little bit about Katie Mitchell because Katie, genuinely one of the greatest protagonists ever put to screen. She introduces herself with the fact that she's weird and her parents don't get her, which honestly, I think most of us can relate because teenagers are for the most part weird. And when you're a teenager with your rampant hormones and your impending adulthood looming, a lot of the time you don't relate to your parents. They might want something different for you or simply they're just worried about how you're going to make it in the world. I was the weird kid. So I was immediately endeared to Katie and the fact that she's creative, she's unsure, she wants to find her people. But obviously in this movie, Katie is openly queer as well. And what I love the most about this movie is the conflict between her and Rick is never to do with her sexuality. It's just the difference between teenagers and their parents. So while she and her family end up on this journey of family discovery and love and acceptance, it's never because of her sexuality. It's accepted. That's just who she is. And while Katie Vision makes use of plentiful rainbows, her official sexuality isn't even mentioned until the end of the movie. It's just been there this whole time. 
But most importantly, she's not defined by it. That's who she is. And we assume that she and Jade are official. And that's really great to know. But she's also funny and creative and brave and weird. And she saved the world from the robot apocalypse. Oh, and by the way, she's queer. And not being LGBTQ myself, I don't know the true impact of this to actual LGBTQ people, other than a few articles online which lauded the Mitchells versus the Machines for making Katie such a relatable representation of the type of character so many LGBTQ kids actually need to see on screen. And I think that that's really important for so many different reasons, not just for those kids, but for their families as well, just to see that, you know what, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, no matter what your sexuality is, you can still save the world from the robot apocalypse. And by God, please do save the world from the impending robot apocalypse. Please do. This is a movie that warrants repeat viewings. Like I say, I've seen it four times. I'm going to be seeing it a fifth. There are so many little Easter eggs from the fully developed robot language, which I'm not going to go into because there's so many articles online about the robot language, deciphering all of these little codes and messages. It's just so intricately detailed. Katie scribbles, including her pitches for a sequel, which include the Mitchells versus the aliens, the Mitchells versus an army of clones, the Mitchells versus the concept of death, and the Mitchells into the Furbyverse, which, please God, let that be the sequel. Her The Shining Pattern Socks, a Wes Anderson-inspired Lawn Wranglers pin on her backpack, a Doctor Strangelove pin. Her movie parodies include Monchi, Fear Eats the Soul, and Fear and Loathing in Central Michigan. I mean, there's so much, there's so many little details in this movie that just make you realise just how much love and thought went into this. I mean, oh, it's just mind-blowing 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 <laughs> genuinely brilliant let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference uh, this is a part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves and this one was easy actually not often will I say that linking Keanu to an animated movie is easy but you know Keanu has also taken on the machines because he did so in The Matrix and its substandard sequels. But I'm only really going to reference The Matrix in this. It's not really the same. And I grant you it's not really the same. It's not really a robot apocalypse. But it's still man taking down the machines. And so I think it's valid. Let's talk about the music. Because this score, Mark Mothersbaugh score, is just a slice of joy. This isn't the first time that he's worked on a Lord and Miller production, having also worked on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 21 and 22 Jump Street, the Lego movie, the Lego movie to the second part, as well as, very obviously, if you compare the scores for this movie, Thor Ragnarok. He's also confirmed to be returning for Thor Love and Thunder. He also worked on video games like Crash Bandicoot and The Sims 2, which I did not know and now I'm blown away. There's all sorts of music in this movie. Sigur Ross features twice on this soundtrack. But there's also a little bit of T.I. and Rihanna as well. But mostly, I think this score is amazing. Genuinely, I think it's so perfect for the movie. And... There's nothing wrong with this movie. There is nothing wrong with it. <laughs> Throughout production of this movie, it was called The Mitchells versus The Machines. And when it came to this movie being released and promoting it, 
Sony announced the name would be changing. So originally it was scheduled to be released theatrically on the 10th of January 2020 and then the movie was delayed to September 2020 because of the pandemic and it was going to be renamed Connected. So Mike Reander, who has a very personal connection to the movie, considering he kind of based it off his own family, felt very strongly about this change. Sony thought the name The Mitchells vs. The Machines sounded too B-movie. Mike Reander did a PowerPoint presentation to executives to win them over, but the connected title stayed, despite it being a very generic one-word title that tells you absolutely nothing about this movie. And obviously the pandemic really changed the fortunes of this movie. You could argue for the better, you could argue for the worst, but with the movie's release halted, Mike Reander obviously feared the worst because no director wants their beloved project languishing in release limbo. However, Sony decided to sell the distribution rights to Netflix in January 2021 for a reported $110 million, with Sony retaining distribution rights in China. Two months later, Netflix announced the movie would be released on the 30th of April 2021, and it would be yet again called The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is a much better name. Netflix agreed, Mike Reander agreed, and actually, Mike Reander felt that the decision got them off on the right foot, despite the movie not having the theatrical release that it obviously wanted and deserved. I really want to see this movie on the big screen, and I'm really sad that we're never going to see that. I really hope that one day we will get to see this movie in cinemas as it was intended because it's a beautiful movie and I just can't imagine what it's like seeing it on the big screen. I really want that. I want that for me and I want that for this movie because the team behind this movie really deserve that theatrical release. And now, usually at this point, I'd be telling you about box office figures, but this is the first Netflix movie featured ever on Verbal Diorama, so box office takings don't exist. We know Sony made 110 million-ish from the sale of the rights to Netflix, and we know that the movie had a 50 to 100 million dollar budget. The exact budget is unknown, and therefore that's only an estimate, but we can gather that Sony made money from the sale, and obviously Netflix would have shouldered any additional marketing costs. What we can ascertain is based on Nielsen ratings, and that the debut of The Mitchells vs. The Machines captured 853 million viewing minutes, making it the most watched programme on any major US VOD service during the week of the 3rd to the 9th of May, where it took the number one spot in the Nielsen rankings. And just for some quick maths, for a 114-minute movie, 853 million viewing minutes translates to approximately 7.48 million complete streams of the movie in that first week or so, just in the US alone. Now, that's not completely accurate because there will be some people out there who only watched half an hour of this movie. I don't know who that person is. I am going to find them Linda Mitchell style and I am going to make them watch the rest of it. But there obviously will be people out there and there will be people that watch this movie repeatedly, like me, like my nephew who loves this movie and I'm so proud that my nephew loves this movie because you know he's got really great taste in movies because he gets it from me but my nephew has seen this movie so many times I think my sister is sick of it I don't know why because it's perfect so yeah take those figures with a massive pinch of salt but this movie did okay on Netflix like I say it is still available 
and you absolutely should watch this movie and I can only hope that one day we will get to see this on the big screen. That is my one wish. If I had a genie, that's what I would wish. The Mitchells vs. The Machines was highly critically regarded. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, 80 out of 100 on Metacritic. It was praised for its visual style, frenetic energy, funny, feel-good story, engaging characters and voice cast, as well as making Katie an openly LGBTQ lead character in a family-orientated animated movie and not making her sexuality part of the conflict with her father. Obviously, we don't know anything about awards and we don't know anything about sequels. I hope that The Mitchells vs. The Machines gets both of those things. But we're going to move over to social media thoughts and we're going to start with, as always, the patrons. I like to know what everyone thinks of these movies. So we're going to start with, as always, Andy... So, Andy says, There were three movies slash shows that have been recommended to me or have been insisted upon me in 2021 with varying results. Zack Snyder's Justice League, a film where Zack Snyder spent four hours in the sandbox hogging all the toys and forgot to actually give characters depth or motivation because he was too busy trying to make Superman evil. Invincible, dull, been-there-before-superheroing that pretty much showed what would happen if you turned Superman evil. The Mitchells versus The Machines. A film that had the same fun, frantic energy of Into the Spider-Verse, complete with various animation design concepts. A film that never forgets its main motivation is to bring the family together, even if that family will now include two robots. I had chosen this as a movie to watch with the kids. My 13-year-old scoffed at first, but later thanked me for having her watch it. A fun movie that deserves the label of the best animated movie of 2021. Sorry, Luca, but you're a close second. And thankfully, nobody tried to turn Superman evil. Obviously, I'm going to give a plug to Andy's podcast, Geek Salad. Geek Salad are an incredible podcast. They are a team of amazingly brilliant, wonderful, super knowledgeable people as well. And they are basically the one-stop shop for any of your geek-related needs. So they do like news, reviews, trivia, anything to do with movies, music, TV, games, literally anything. It is a veritable salad bowl of geek. You've got everything to do with Geek in that bowl. You just need to download and listen. So make sure that you do. Links will be in the show notes. We've also got a comment from Brendan who says, The Mitchells versus the Machines became one of my favourite viewing experiences during the moment I realised that the hilarious Gadlin set piece from the trailers that I assumed was the finale was only built into something even weirder, wilder and more emotional. The Mitchells vs. The Machines combines the gag a second pacing of the Lego movie with the creative animation styling of Into the Spider-Verse. I can't wait to see what the directors and super producer duo Phil Lord and Chris Miller get up to next. Me too, Brendan. I'm just so excited to see what's coming next from all of these people. And we also have a comment from Dan who says, Not only a great animated movie, which it most definitely is, but also a great action movie, a great family drama, a great buddy comedy, and a great road movie, Move Over Fury Road. It has great characters, great visuals, and a great story. Even if you have to endure the same tired technology and social media bad trope, I am never leaving home without my number three, Robertson, again. And the final patron comment comes from Scott, and he says... This one did not disappoint, barring being unable to see it on the big screen. A wonderful, colourful, hilarious comedy with bags of heart. I'm not ashamed to say that when the opening bars of Cigar Rose played, I did a full-on ugly cry. 
and Scott is one of the hosts of Monkey See Monkey Review, a podcast about basically a group of lovely guys enthusing about film and they are all lovely. So make sure you have a listen. Links as always in the show notes and always a massive thank you to the patrons for commenting on this episode. We're going to move over to Twitter because, you know, we've had quite a few actually on social media for this movie, which to be honest, I was kind of expecting because everyone I speak to really, really likes this movie. So we're going to start with Twitter and we're going to start with at Connections Cult who say, a must watch for film nerds. I loved it. At Nerdrovert who says, a fantastic family film that gets better with each rewatch. At Russ Loves Movies said, a masterpiece and easily my favourite film of 2021 so far. The Furby sequence is an all timer and what initially feels a hectic thrill ride becomes something more tender in a rewatch. Love, love, love it. Also, Aaron Forever. At Geeks with Shields said, it's a great movie that hits the dad fields incredibly hard. At Claire Ellen Hope said, completely unexpectedly emotionally devastating. I was weeping long after the credits finished. Such a wonderful and heartfelt story that had me wishing I could give my dad a huge hug. And at Kids Watching said, love the style of animation, love the story, whole family loved this movie. That's it. End of. Moving over to Instagram, we have at sassylassie76, who says, I love this movie. My eight-year-old son and I watched it when it premiered. And when it was over, my son talked nonstop about how much love the family had for each other and how hard they fought the machines. For me, the first thing that stood out was the animation. The bright colours and variety of designs stood out. Katie's movies were fun to see and her interactions with college classmates were sweet. I love Olivia Coleman as a vindictive angry phone. The temper tantrum is hilarious. I have watched this film multiple times and always find something new to marvel at or fall in love with. And at SP underscore film viewers said the animation is fantastic. Sony definitely have a good style going on at the moment. I laughed. I cried. I loved it. No comments on Facebook this time around, but a huge thank you to everyone who provided comments on The Mitchells versus The Machines. It genuinely is such a fantastic movie, and I'm so happy that so many people love it like I do. So thank you for that. Right from the opening credits of this movie, you know this is going to be special. As soon as you have the Katie visioned opening credits, the homages and references to classic movies like Terminator, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Mad Max Fury Road, Dawn of the Dead, Ghostbusters, Star Wars, as well as not so classic movies like iRobot, sorry Will Smith, to the beautiful animation style that honestly takes my breath away every single time. Spider-Verse brought a comic book to life. This brings a watercolour painting to life. It's beautiful. Everyone in the cast is perfect, the emotional beats are perfect, but the humour, I genuinely laughed for several minutes non-stop at the Furbies. And when you have quality comedians on the cast like Maya Rudolph, when Linda Mitchell goes all Kill Bill, it's genuinely my favourite thing that I've ever seen on screen. This is the same studio that gave us the Emoji Movie. This movie is proof, if any is required, that every studio has the ability to be better that Sony Animation gave us Spider-Verse and then this, God, I can't wait to see what they do next. And additionally, we're so reliant on technology that this movie is basically prophesizing our impending doom. It's almost like stealing people's data and giving it to a hyper-intelligent AI as part of an unregulated tech monopoly was a bad thing. But somewhere out there, a kid like Katie Mitchell will save us all. I can't wait. Honestly, as long as there's free Wi-Fi, we'll all be fine being blasted into the black void of distant space, as long as there is a kid like Katie Mitchell in the world. 
Like this movie, embrace your imperfections and your weirdness. You don't need to paint over the watercolour of life with sharp lines and faultless CGI. And I feel like if that doesn't summarise verbal diorama, then I don't know what does. This movie is perfect. And if you think otherwise, I may go full Samurai Linda Mitchell. And scary now. <laughs> the Mitchells versus the Machines. Behold, cinema. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Mitchells versus the Machines. If you did enjoy this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can tell your friends and family about this episode, especially, especially if they love this movie. And you can also retweet and like posts on social media as well, if you wish. But if you specifically really love this episode on the Mitchells versus the Machines, then you might also like one of the following episodes. So I mentioned earlier, I have covered the Lego movie and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and I did them as a pretty much a double bill. The Lego movie is episode 31. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is episode 32. They are both incredible movies. So many different reasons why they're incredible. The Lego movie, you expect it to just be a standard toy tie-in movie. It is so much more than that. It is so innovative and brilliant and funny and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse genuinely the best Spider-Man movie and I feel like is that a controversial statement I love Spider-Man too don't get me wrong I think everyone does but Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is so beautiful and so special I feel like don't make me choose between Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and the Mitchells versus the Machines. Don't ever make me choose between them because they are both so special to me. I love them both equally. But yeah, you should absolutely listen to both of those episodes. And also, if you have not seen those movies, please watch them. They are brilliant. Uh, and as always, give me feedback on my recommendations. So the next episode, I've actually hinted at the next episode several times in this and it links quite perfectly to this movie as well because this movie is a road trip movie and I mentioned earlier that the Furby alternative was going to be an Immortan Joe style leader and so it felt completely right to go from the Mitchells versus the Machines straight into Mad Max Fury Road and I did plan this <laughs> this is not a weird coincidence I thought to myself, well, I want to do the Mitchells versus the Machines and I want to do Mad Max Fury Road and it just makes so much sense to do them one after the other. And Mad Max Fury Road is a movie that I've wanted to feature for so long. So strap in, guys, because we're going on another adventure. We're going to take Tom Hardy, we're going to take Charlize Theron and the only thing that I have to say is witness me. Join me next week for Mad Max Fury Road. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so. I'm at, I'm at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. You can also sign up to support the show financially on Patreon, which is verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, 
Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. Raptabash! I also have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch, which is going to be updated very soon, by the way, with a new merch store. And you can email me, uh, verbaldiorama at gmail.com with just general hellos or whatever. You can also get in touch with me at verbaldiorama.com. And you can also pop over to Film Stories. You can check out the magazine, the articles that I write. And I have written an article on Film Stories on the Mitchells versus the Machines. I will be popping a link to that in the show notes because absolutely you should read that article. If you want a little written piece to kind of compliment this episode, it's in the show notes. And finally, what you need to do is be thankful for the life you got, you know what I'm saying? Stop looking at what you ain't got and start being thankful for what you do got. Let's get it to him, baby girl. Bye.